Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, freezing the handgun market. From today forward, it is no longer legal to buy, sell, or transfer a handgun in Canada. As the Prime Minister just said, Canadians can no longer buy, sell, or transfer handguns in this country. But over a million handguns still remain within our borders. So, will this move actually curb gun violence? We'll ask the Public Safety Minister, Marco Mendicino, and then get some opposition reaction. Then, police dysfunction? We had sources in the ministry that were letting them know that, you know, people wanted them to fail. The inquiry into the government's use of the Emergencies Act hears of police infighting and a police chief who feared provincial sabotage. Did that hamper the convoy crackdown? We'll bring you the latest. Plus, bringing Boris back? Political turmoil in the UK. The most powerful argument you could possibly have for a general election. The ruling Tory party is facing pressure to call a general election as rumours swirl of a bojo comeback. We dig into the political storm across the Atlantic. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. This is one of the strongest actions we've taken on gun violence in a generation. Our goal over time is to see the amount of handguns in our communities reduced. A national handgun freeze. Effective right now, it's illegal to buy, sell, or trade handguns in Canada. It's part of sweeping measures in proposed legislation to curb gun violence in Canada. Now, in the summer, Canada took steps to stop guns from coming into the country. Now the government is trying to stop guns from changing hands within the country. Handguns were the most serious weapon present in the majority of firearms-related violent crimes between 2009 and 2020. But even with this measure, over a million registered handguns remain in Canada. So does this go far enough to tackle gun violence in this country? With the inquiry into the Emergencies Act ongoing, does our next guest think he was right to say that there were extremist elements involved in the convoy? Let's find out. And joining me now is Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino. Welcome, Minister. Thank you so much for making the time today. Well, I wanted to get right into the national handgun freeze. That's coming into effect today. Stats Canada says that handguns were the most serious weapon present in the majority of firearm-related violent crimes. There's currently over a million registered handguns in Canada. If the government is this concerned about handgun-related crime, why not implement a buyback program right now? Well, first, I would point out that this is probably the most significant stride that we have made uh, when it comes to gun control in a generation. Um, it is precisely because of the size of the universe of handguns, which has grown exponentially over the last decade, about 45 to 55,000 new registrations each year that we put a national handgun freeze, which will effectively end the market going forward, meaning that it will be illegal to buy, sell, transfer handguns anywhere, save and except for a few tailored exceptions. Um, but it's also part of a broader plan. And it's important for your viewers to recall that we have a national 
uh, ban when it comes to assault style rifles, which we're going to extend into a buyback program because these are guns that have no place in our communities. They were designed to kill. It's in addition to the investments we're making at the border to stop illegal smuggling. And finally, it's part of a plan that will include a strategy to prevent gun crime from occurring in the first place through the Building Safer Communities Fund. And it's only with all of these elements being advanced at the same time that we can eradicate gun violence once and for all. Why is it important? For the victims and the survivors with whom I meet almost every day now, which is tragic, but we're inspired by them. And that's why this national handgun freeze is so important. I wanted to ask you about the next steps. There's a new report that's coming out that we're hearing opposition members are trying to water down provisions in the freeze by widening it to beyond elite sports shooters, to include shooting club members. How do you feel about that possibility coming from the committee? Well, I know what an impact gun violence has had in Quebec, on the streets of Montreal, in Quebec, at the mosque uh, a few years back. I know uh, what an impact it's having right across the country. I, I think that the progressive political parties with whom we are working in, uh, in Parliament at the Standing Committee for Public Safety are very committed to finding a, a, a way to put forward a bill that will work for everyone. So that's the first point I would make. It is the Conservatives who have unfortunately filibustered the progress in the past of Bill C-21. Um, and we need to you know, just remember that this is important, that this is not just an exercise in citing statistics. I mean, just yesterday, I was at the funeral for two fallen police officers, Constables Northrup and Constable uh, Russell in South Simcoe. Um, we owe it to them. We owe it to everybody to not be shackled by the status quo, to push forward with smart, sensible legislation by, like Bill C-21, which we need to do as quickly as we can. But what if you do if they do try to water it down, though? What will your government do? Well, first, I don't want to preempt the work of the committee, which is being undertaken independently by the members who sit on it. So we've had discussions with parliamentarians, and I've said my door is open to uh, studying and working with parliamentarians, as well as any recommendations that they put forward. So we're going to keep an open mind in the government. But the fundamental goal here is to get at the problem. And the problem is that we have seen the proliferation of gun violence, uh, concurrently with the explosion of handgun uh, the handgun universe, that's something that we've got to reverse the trend of, and that's one of the reasons why it was important to bring into effect the national handgun freeze today. And part of some of your legislation and what you're trying to do here is this proposed gun buyback program for assault-style firearms. Now you have three provinces, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Alberta. They're saying they're not going to support this program. So how successful can it realistically be without provincial support and the resources as well? Well, I am an eternal optimist, uh, but with a good dose of realism. So the first thing I would say is let's look at the big picture here. The big picture is that assault-style rifles have no place in our communities. They were designed with one purpose in mind, and that is to kill as many people as possible in the shortest period of time. Take a look at Porta Picturo, the Quebec City Mosque, the Polytechnique tragedy, um, you know, in 1989. I mean, this is... This is something that's real, and that's why we banned assault-style rifles over two years ago, and now we need to get them out, which is what the purpose of the buyback program will be. But, and this but if you don't have the support, how good is it? If you don't have the support of the provinces, how good is that program actually going to be? Well, I'm coming to that, and I met with my provincial and territorial partners just last week in Nova Scotia, and I would say that we need to focus on supporting each other, supporting the work, making sure that law enforcement has the resources that they need uh, so that we can implement this buyback program, and that is something that we are going to drill down on. Um, in addition to that, 
We're also stopping the illegal trafficking of guns at our borders with an investment of over $320 million since last year. And we're rolling out more quickly the Building Safer Communities Fund at the grassroots, providing local organizations with the tools they need to expand the capacity of prevention strategies. Again, it's not about picking one lane. You've got to do all of these things at the same time. That's what our plan is, and that's how we're going to reduce gun violence. I've got to shift gears here for a second to the ongoing inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. Documents presented to the Commission show that the Ontario Provincial Police question your assertion that there were extremist elements involved in the convoy. Here's a quote from the OPP Superintendent, Pat Morris. It says, quote, I do not know where the political figures are acquiring info or well, intel on the extent of extremism, e extremist involvement. In light of this, do you stand by that assertion that you made? Yes. Um, let's go back to the beginning of 2022. Uh, and what you saw was an unprecedented public order emergency, not only in the nation's capital, at the seat of our federal government, but at various border communities and legislatures across this country. And when you looked at what sparked that movement, what you saw was extremist rhetoric, a call on the governor general to force the federal government uh, to reverse on vaccine mandates, some of which weren't even within our jurisdiction, I would point out, or else to fire the entire government. You saw um, figures like Pat King, who had close affiliations with the so-called Freedom Convoy, say that the only way that this is going to end is with bullets. Um, that's on the record. And so that then, is so then, Minister, so I've only got a little bit of time left, so I, but I'm trying to figure out how's the disconnect here between you and the OPP? Look, this is precisely what Judge Rouleau is going to have to study. It's not for me to make these findings a fact. There's an independent public inquiry uh, with Judge Rouleau, with the mandate to listen to all of the evidence. And yes, he's heard from some law enforcement branches. He will hear from other law enforcement branches. I assume there will be a wide variety of evidence and opinions. Um, at the end of the day, though, this was a government decision. And it was a necessary decision. You had thousands of workers put out of their jobs. You had uh, families who couldn't take their kids to childcare. You had families and in some of the most vulnerable members of our society needing essential health care treatment who were deprived of it because of the illegal blockades, notwithstanding the call of law enforcement to go home. They refused to do that. And it was only after we looked at the situation and said that we had this tool that we could use, but we used it reluctantly and in a time-limited, targeted, charter-compliant way that we did give that power to the police, and it worked. And now we need to work with Judge Rouleau to take some lessons away from this so ideally we never have to use that law again. Just before we let you go, I wanted to ask you one last question, specifically about Brenda Lucky, RCMP commissioner, has been at the center of allegations of political interference over a meeting with the Nova Scotia RCMP officers in the aftermath of the 2020 mass shooting. Those allegations are specifically tied to naming the firearms used by the gunmen and how that could help your government's plan changes to gun, gun regulations. In your mind, how did these recordings that we heard this week change the conversation around that political interference? Well, first, this was probably one of the most difficult times in our country's history as it relates to public safety. It was the worst mass casualty um, uh, ever related to, uh, to gun violence. And of course, people wanted to know what had happened, especially the families who'd lost loved ones. And, um, you know, the police have a job to do and the government has a job to do as well, which is to communicate broadly the work that is being undertaken by police to restore public safety. At all times, what I would say to you, and I believe that the transcript confirms, there was a respect for operational independence. And now we'll cooperate with 
the commission in Nova Scotia to make sure that the recommendations that they may put forward um, will be implemented and adhered to again so that uh, we don't see this kind of uh, uh, gun tragedy occurring again. And I'll just round out my answer by saying this has been a really challenging period very challenging for victims and survivors. I meet with them all the time and frankly too often lately. And that's why we've got to keep pressing forward with a plan that will reduce gun violence once and for all. And that's why the national handgun freeze today is a significant step in that positive direction. Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. Thank you. Let's get some other perspectives now from opposition MPs. Will the national handgun freeze actually reduce gun violence? Or is there another way? Joining me now are conservative public safety critic Raquel Dancho and NDP MP Alexandre Boulleris. Nice to see both of you. Thank you so much for being here. Ms. Dancho, I'll start with you first. What does your party think will actually reduce gun violence if not this handgun freeze? We've heard from the Toronto Police, which is really the epicenter of gun violence in this country. We've heard from them that eight to nine out of every ten firearms used in crimes are smuggled in from the United States. Uh, experts across the country, police experts across the country agree this is a gang and criminal issue where they're smuggling guns in from the United States. So we believe that we need to uh, invest more, far more resources in the border to stop that gun smuggling. We also need to invest resources in policing efforts so that they can combat gang activity. And we also need to contribute to community grassroots organizations that help prevent at-risk youth from joining a life of crime. That is where the issues are and that's where the resources need to be. Unfortunately, we've learned recently that Marco Mendicino, the public safety minister, is planning to redirect RCMP officers from fighting the very gun crime we're trying to stop, redirecting those officers and instead presumably going door to door to seize private property of licensed, trained, vetted Canadian firearms but owners. Isn't that only for them, for people who want to actually participate in the buyback program, not, not going door to door to get them from people. Oh, well, they have not explained how they're going to implement it, but we know that they're going to seize private property and people do not have an option to deal with the confiscation regime. They have to. And so we're hearing from provincial governments that the Liberal government is looking to pull RCMP officers from fighting crime to go to law-abiding citizens' homes and seize their private property, which will only further endanger public safety and allow criminals to get away with the gun violence that is happening now. So it's a very reckless approach and we don't support it. Mr. I want to ask you, what do you think of this plan and what do you think is a potentially better plan to actually stop gun violence? But, you know, we, we welcome this decision today, but uh, I'm going to say my first reaction is it, it's about time. Uh, gun violence in the streets of, of Montreal, it's a, it's a real crisis. There's uh, shootings. Uh, people are, are scared and terrified. People are killed in our streets. And uh, the city of Montreal is asking for action for, for months now. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a first step in the right direction, but is it going to be enough? Uh, we don't think so. And uh, we think that uh, the federal government needs to be much more involved with the community groups and, and, and support uh, to, to make sure that the young people are not going in a, in a, in a life of crime with, with, with violence. And also, the smuggling of illegal arms at the, our border is a big, big issue. And M Minister Mendicino said, yeah, we, we are fighting that, but it's not effective. It's, it's just not working. There's too many new illegal R, uh, guns and guns are coming in, in Canada, in Quebec, in Montreal, and uh, the, the, the Liberals should uh, do more and uh, more quickly.
So we've got the NDP and Conservatives agreeing on that. At least there's something, right, <laughs> Ms. Dancho? I want to switch gears, though, to the Emergencies Act Commission this week. We had heard some of the transcripts of this call between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson. And in it, Prime Minister Trudeau says that he believes that the, uh, the Ontario Premier, Doug Ford, is hiding from his responsibilities in this. What do you make of that assessment by the Prime Minister? I think the Prime Minister is trying to deflect responsibility. Let's remember why the protesters were in Ottawa. They were in Ottawa because they were motivated by Justin Trudeau's divisive rhetoric, certainly during the last election, uh, which was just months prior, which certainly motivated thousands of people to mobilize and donate to the protesters. The protesters came down to Ottawa to protest not the Ottawa police, not Doug Ford. They came here to protest Justin Trudeau's rhetoric and his policies. So I think he's really trying to deflect blame for his actions. And again, if it, if, if it is found that the threshold to invoke the Emergencies Act, which is extraordinarily high for good reason because it overwrites our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, if it is found that that threshold was not met, then this may be the largest political stunt in modern history. So he has a lot to try to deflect on. And where we believe that threshold was not met, that there was not a national emergency to public safety or to our economy, not to downplay the significance of it. Mm -hmm. We understand it was very traumatizing for many people in Ottawa, but that does not mean it met the incredibly high threshold of uh, the, invo uh, the invocation is needed for that act. So we are concerned that he overrided charter rights without the proper justification, and that would be very serious. Yeah, of course. And Mr. Bouleris, uh, in this, I mean, Marco Mendicino at the time had said that there were extremist elements of the convoy, as you saw when you know he stood by that when I asked him about it, but OPP Superintendent Pat Morris questioned that. What was that like a fair assertion for the minister to make? Do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. And uh, you know, I I was I was in Ottawa for a part of this of this illegal occupation, and you could saw you know Nazi flags, uh, Confederate flags from the United States, a lot of uh, flags for. In favor of Donald Trump, and the you know they, they said uh, quite uh, clearly that they want to overthrow the elected democratic, democratically elected government in Ottawa and replace it by I don't know what exactly like non-democratic uh, government with the Senate. And let's re re remind that the actual uh, leader of the Conservative Party uh, visited them and uh, and gave them you know uh, encouragements and, and coffee and, and donuts. And it was uh, illegal occupation, and it was a, 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 a non-democratic, and they were they were bullies. They were bullies in the streets of Ottawa. They were people were afraid to wear masks. They were not able to sleep. And and and, and, if, and in effect, the city of Ottawa and the the Ontario uh, uh, government were, were not able to deal with that. So uh, the the inquiry will will come with, with their own conclusion. But I think it was a good good thing to be at least able to freeze the assets and uh, the bank accounts. And, and, and force the, the companies and, the, and to remove those, those trucks from the, the streets of, uh, of Ottawa. Alexandre Boulares from the NDP, Raquel Dancho from the Conservatives, thank you both for joining us. British Columbia has officially, now has officially a premier designate. David Eby says he's ready to get to work and make the province a better place to live. It has been about delivering results for people that they can see, that they can touch, that they can feel, that change their lives. If the work that I'm doing doesn't do that, then I've, I've changed direction because that is so central to what I want to do. I want to deliver for people in very real ways. And I think back to... EB's path to the Premier's office has been controversial. His only competitor in the NDP leadership race was disqualified. 
Today, EB laid out his plan for his first 100 days. It includes expanding access to affordable housing and redirecting fossil fuel subsidies to clean energy. He also wants to improve access to health care and build safer communities. Well, coming up, the buzz over Boris. Could ousted UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson make a political comeback? CTV News' Daniel Hamamjin has the latest from London next. Donald Trump's former advisor Steve Bannon has been sentenced to four months for contempt of Congress. The judge sentenced Bannon to two months on each contempt count, which he pleaded guilty to back in the summer. He says he will appeal. Bannon willfully ignored a subpoena to appear before the committee investigating the January 6th Capitol Hill riot. And former U.S. President Donald Trump has been formally subpoenaed to the January 6th committee demanding he testify. The Congressional Committee investigating the Capitol attack wants Trump to testify about some of the most key moments leading up to January 6th. The committee also wants Trump to provide documents and communications about his role. In the subpoena, the committee writes that Trump, quote, personally orchestrated and oversaw a multi-part effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election and to obstruct the peaceful transition of power, end quote. Trump has not said whether he will comply with the subpoena. Across the Atlantic now, in the aftermath of Liz Truss's resignation as Prime Minister, UK Conservatives are looking for a quick leadership race to contain the power vacuum left at 10 Downing Street. Some Tories are eyeing Truss's predecessor, Boris Johnson, as her replacement. Yes, the same scandal-plagued Boris Johnson, who was ousted as Prime Minister, which paved the way for Truss to become the UK's shortest-serving PM. With rumours of a potential Bojo comeback, official opposition and Labour Party leader Keir Starmer is arguing that a general election should be called. Take a listen to this. Boris Johnson left office because most of those who were serving him on his front bench had declared that he was unfit for office. So to go from the kamikaze budget under Liz Truss back to a man that his own party has declared is unfit for office is the most powerful argument you could possibly have for a general election. The UK Tories hold a majority in Parliament, so they still hold all the cards over who will be the country's next Prime Minister. Despite the buzz over Boris, only one candidate has thrown their name into the leadership ring so far. Conservative House Leader Penny Mordaunt officially declared her candidacy for the top job today. So, how are Brits handling the political whiplash at Westminster? Let's find out. For the latest from London, let's bring in CTV News' Danielle Hamamjin. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. Now, with Trust out, is the UK Conservative Party just in crisis right now? Oh, it's been in crisis for, for days, if not weeks. It's not even on life support. It's just, I had a friend email me yesterday uh, telling me that she was Googling the term failed state. Um, this is unheard of. And, um, you know, the embarrassment of having to replace a leader that they chose just six weeks ago, it was either that or the pain of keeping Liz Truss in power, which was simply not an option, obviously. And so now we look ahead to a, 
a one-week race. In fact, I say one week, Mike. We might end up knowing on Monday night who the new prime minister will be because the threshold is gone from 20 con MPs, uh, the support of 20 MPs to 100. And those are the rules. Um, candidates for prime minister need 100 MPs to back them in order to make it onto the ballot. If one is significantly ahead of the others, it'll be an obvious choice and we'll know on Monday. I mean, Danielle, we're also hearing a lot about Boris Johnson. Is it possible that there is a Bojo comeback in the cards? Uh, there is. He is set to be on his way back from his Caribbean holidays, and the papers here are reporting that he's got dozens of MPs behind him supporting him. Um, the thing with Boris Johnson is that he is still popular in in the wider Conservative Party, and they see Rishi Sunak, the frontrunner, as the guy who stabbed him in the back. He was the first one to resign, and it triggered this domino effect. So they see him uh, as the traitor. Um, and so, but Boris Johnson, his supporters will also say, is the only leader, the only Conservative MP, who ran in a general election. He won a majority, an 80-seat majority, so he's got a mandate. However... He did have that mandate, but that was before COVID. Mm -hmm. That was before the party gate scandal. And now he's also the subject of a commons investigation on whether or not he lied to Parliament. If they do find that he lied to Parliament, he could be suspended as an MP, which means that if he is to get the keys back to number 10 Downing Street, within weeks he could find himself embroiled in yet another scandal. Unbelievable. And all this, adding to all of this, is that there is some speculation. Some people within Westminster calling for a general election. Is that also a possibility? I mean, the opposition would love nothing more because Labour has something like a 40-point lead. And it's unheard of. But the Conservatives have seen the poll. They do not want an election and the Labour, the opposition can't force one. They can force votes in the House that will split the Tories. Uh, but there's nothing really practically that they can do. Um, there's a cost of living crisis. People, you know, this is you know, more theater, more drama. It could be entertaining to some, but there is a cost of living crisis. People are choosing between having to heat their homes or feed their kids. They want stability in this country and they want someone who will understand the world of finance and who will get this country back on track. We'll keep watching. Danielle Hamamjan in London, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Coming up, October is spooky season. So what's giving parliamentarians a fright? Could it be the warnings of a looming global economic recession? Our panel of strategists joins us next to discuss the scary R word. Stay with us. Power Play is coming back. A lot of families are worried about their household finances uh, and grateful for the help that the federal government had given during the pandemic and also grateful for the help that we are sending now in a targeted way for those families who need it most. But Canadians are also worried uh, about fiscal responsibility so that we can be sure to have the ability to respond uh, in case the economy deteriorates. And that was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in Surrey, B.C., indicating his government will start tightening its purse strings. It comes, as economists warn, of a looming global recession. Yesterday, while testifying before Senate Committee, former Bank of Canada Governor Mark Carney said a recession in Canada was probable. But he said it would be a storm, 
not a hurricane. So with a gloomy economic forecast on the horizon, should Canadians brace for a period of government austerity? Let's bring in our strategy session to weigh in. Greg McCreckin. Greg McEachran. At least it made you giggle. <laughs> For proof strategy, he leans liberal, former deputy conservative leader, Lisa Raich. She's the vice chair of global investment banking for CIBC. And the national director of the NDP, Anne McGrath, also giggled at my pronunciation, her name a lot easier. Greg, I'm going to go with first names from now on, if you don't mind. <laughs> Prime Minister Trudeau says... Fiscally responsible. People need to brace for that. Is that just him kind of sugarcoating the word austerity? Mike, is it? Yes. Um, <clears throat> per, you know, perhaps so. I, you know, there's a there's some messages there that you know conservatives should be happy with, blue liberals should be happy Ooh. with. There are some messages there that um, you know perhaps Lisa Raitt heard when she was in cabinet. The ones that are coming from Freeland, which is you have to you know find your own way to uh, from your own budget if you want to have new spending. This is not you know it's a it's a you know tale as old as time um, in in terms of that. I think what's a bit different is. We have, you know, the specter of a recession. We have the war in Ukraine still going on, which is influencing in inflation and supply chains. But we also have this other unknown, which is people returning to work. Um, is the rate, did the great resignation really happen? Mm -hmm. Are we resigned to that or did, or was it just a, a, a pause? So there's a lot of unknowns here. What I'm looking for is the positive in what Mark Carney said, which was, you know, basically Canada's financials are strong and solid. Um, you know, there, we've been through similar things to 2008, the 80s, we've seen how it can go really badly. Uh, I think this time, if we're prepared for it, as you know, the Prime Minister's messaging seems to want us to be, I think it, it might be a little bit better. And part of the supply and confidence agreement with the NDP does involve dental care and progress on pharmacare, two expensive programs. How does this belt tightening affect that, and how does it weigh into that sort of agreement that keeps everybody going uh, and no election for a couple of years here? Well, I think if there was any uh, attempt to pull back on some of the things that are in the agreement, particularly dental care, pharmacare, and other things that are in there, there would be some problems. Mm. There's, no, there's no question in my mind about that. The other thing to note in this is that when a finance minister goes out and gives a message like that, people take notice. Banks notice, markets notice, people notice. And I think one of the things that people will notice in this, Canadian citizens will notice, is that corporate uh, profits are sky high right now. Oil and gas companies, big box retailers, uh, there's just incredible uh, profits that are being realized by some of the biggest corporations and wealthy CEOs are getting even bigger bonuses and dividends for their shareholders. So that kind of inequality, that kind of uh, unevenness, I think is something that, that, that Canadians will pay attention to, particularly given uh, the events of the last week with the kind of controversy around law laws and, and the way that it mm -hmm. tried to use a public, you know, kind of yeah. use this, uh, no, their no-name products as a public relations ploy. I think people notice gross, they are raking in money. And if the message from the finance minister is that ordinary Canadians, people who work for a living, have to tighten their belts, I think there's an, an inherent unfairness in all of that that people will not like. I'm going to bring in Lisa Raitt in just a second, but you had said that if pharmacare or dental care are affected by this, there will be a problem. I mean, does that mean the deal is off? Uh, well, I mean, we've been clear all the way along that, 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 the, that the price of, of, uh, uh, of, of voting uh, in, for, in confidence measures uh, for this government mm -hmm. to make sure that there is no election, uh, the price of that is the things that are in the agreement. And uh, so, yes, those things have to go forward. And Jagmeet has been very clear about that. Our critics have been very clear about that. We're working hard to get those things realized, and we will keep the pressure on.
Lisa, bring you in here for a second. I imagine Conservatives would be happy to see Liberals even uttering the words fiscal responsibility, but does this undermine the Conservative attacks on Trudeau for being big spenders? I, I, I don't know if it undermines anything, Mike. I mean, what Mark Carney said is exactly what all the bank economists are saying. And it's what you're reading in the newspapers, that we should be prepared for inflation. Sorry, that we should be prepared for a recession. And as uh, the prime minister sends the message that they're going to cut back on their spending, what he's also saying is that he's going to try to get a hold of inflation, which is putting a dent into people's pocketbooks right now as we speak. Uh, I'd add to the list that Greg put out that energy crisis is going to be something that's going to be really very much in the forefront of people's lives in the coming months. And it's not going to be a pleasant winter. I'm hoping that Mr. Carney is right and that the chief economists are right, that this is going to be a, a small recession. It's going to be quick. Uh, and I fear it's going to be worse. But at least everybody's acknowledging that that's the direction this may be going in. And I'd add one last thing. After the disastrous approach to the economy in the UK, you can see that the prime minister may be thinking, I want to make sure that the markets are kind of happy with the kinds of things that we're talking about. And cutting spending is something certainly that the, the markets are looking for. Greg, I wanted to ask you about that Toronto Star article from Stephanie Levitz where she talked about Christopher Freeland basically sending a message to cabinet ministers saying that if you want extra spending, you've got to find money in your own budget. What does that do to the dynamic around the cabinet table where you have all of these ministers who are lobbying for their departments? Well, I mean, again, it's not a new message. I mean, I worked for cabinet ministers who got the same message. But it's I, new for this government. It's new for this one. And I think what's also different is perhaps the way it was communicated. Perhaps it was communicated behind the scenes. But I, I you know, from, from what I have picked up, even from the point of view of, of the deputy prime minister, the attention to her speeches this week may have surprised her and some other people. It might have been a little bit out over your skis kind of kind of moment. And again, you you really don't want to be surprising your cabinet colleagues ever. Yeah, Lisa, I got about a minute left. I'm going to try and get it between yeah. you and Anne. So this government is touting its economic position going into a possible recession, especially compared to other G6, G7 nations. Does that really matter to everyday Canadians who are struggling with high inflation? Maybe. Um, they're definitely going to be focused on their pocketbook. They're going to be thinking about what it means to them. As I said, Mike, I think we're in for a lot of pain the, the next couple of months, and perhaps the government's trying to buffer themselves against what may be coming, which is a heavy amount of criticism. And I was going to ask you as well here, now we consider all that we are dealing with right now in this world, inflation, high cost of living, what are the stakes now for this fall economic statement? Oh, I think the stakes are high, for sure. And I think everybody recognizes that we are potentially going into a recession. And, and I agree with Lisa, it will be painful. What Canadians are going to want to know is that that pain isn't disproportionately on them because the, the, the causes of this inflation and recession are not wages. It's not because Canadians are spending too much. Uh, I think that there are other causes there that we're not looking at. And I think that many other countries are, are taxing windfall profits by these big corporations, Canada should do that too so that it is not Canadians that end up bearing the brunt of what's going on now. They'll, they're going to want their government to spend the money wisely mm -hmm. uh, for sure, but uh, I don't think that uh, Canadians want to be the ones that have to pay the price. Anne McGrath, Greg McEachran.
Lisa Raitt. Thank you all for being here. Have a great weekend. <laughs> Coming up, Ontario's provincial police is in the, hot, in the hot seat in the Emergencies Act inquiry. What new revelations about the police response to the convoy? What did we learn today? Well, Kevin Gallagher will be here with the latest. This is an event that was clearly now beyond the capability of one signal organization just by its size and, and, and the need for resources. It stretched well beyond what Ottawa police themselves could provide. They were in crisis mode. And in crisis mode, they, I did not feel that they were using the intelligence to look at the broader event to see about how they could dismantle this event peacefully. There was a loss of confidence and faith being displayed by the public. Welcome back. The first full week of testimony at the Emergencies Act inquiry comes to an end today. Ontario Provincial Police Superintendent Craig Abrams and retired OPP Chief Superintendent Carson Party testified before the commission. For more, let's bring in CTV News parliamentary reporter Kevin Gallagher. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Tell us what stood out to you today. Well, Mike, I think the big thing was it's just more of a pylon here uh, for former Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, especially with Chief Superintendent or like retired Chief Superintendent Carson Party's testimony saying, hey, that, you know, when he first got here to Ottawa on February 9th, he went to go meet with Chief Slowly and he found that meeting unprofessional. He felt disrespected. Obviously, he talked about the disorganization in terms of what they found when they wanted to try and get a plan together with the Ottawa Police to find a solution to lift the occupation of downtown Ottawa, the disorganization and, you know, issues within the police department made that super difficult. Mm -hmm. But also there seemed to be some paranoia almost from Peter Slowly that he felt, uh, according to the testimony today from Mr. Party, that there were people in the province who wanted him to fail. So... All of these, you know, situations really combined for um, a pretty negative out outcome, I suppose, yeah. with lifting that blockade. And we just really quick, what happens on Monday? Well, we're going to hear from uh, Peter Slowly's replacement, interim chief at the time, of course, uh, Steve Bell. And uh, next week, we should uh, soon hear from Peter Slowly himself. He might be able to shed a bit more light on what he was thinking uh, as all this was unfolding, since there's been so much testimony that's been quite damning towards him. A lot of questions for him to answer. Definitely. Kevin Gallagher, thank you so much for being there and updating us. Coming up... Released recordings from a conversation with RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky and Nova Scotia RCMP officers. Do they change the tone of the political firestorm that erupted over allegations of political interference? The press gallery plays and misplays of the week are next. Welcome back. It's the end of the week and nearly the end of this show, so that can mean only one thing. Now, some people like to say fry yay. I prefer to say fry play and misplay. As my kids and colleagues cringe about that play on words, let's introduce the press gallery with their political plays and misplays of the week. With me in studio, CTV online producer, Rachel Aiello. Just a couple of clicks on ctvnews.ca. You can subscribe to her Capital Dispatch newsletter, 
Toronto Star columnist Susan Delacourt, Greg Weston from Earnscliffe Strategies, thank you to you all. Rachel, we're going to start with you. You've got a misplay, and it's around those newly released recordings from the Mass Casualty Commission. Yeah, so this lucky call that we've all been hearing a lot about for many, many months, we finally actually got to hear it mm -hmm. this week. And I'm giving a misplay for, I think, how the call was mischaracterized. I will get into the whole conversation about legislation, but I think this was framed by a number of Nova Scotia RCMP officers as it was extremely unprofessional. She was trying to you know, berate us or belittle us. And I think we've got a bit of it here. Take a listen and see if that's what you think. I feel bad even having this conversation because I don't want any of you to feel bad. But I, it's, it's, it's disheartening for me to try to manage our RCMP, which is bigger than Nova Scotia, um, and trying to at least give the... Prime Minister, a bit of information before he hears it on the news. That's kind of a normal course of events, and yet we couldn't do that. So I think, Mike, here, at best, this is really a scandal or controversy stemming from a basic misunderstanding of how government works, and maybe at worst, the Nova Scotia RCMP trying to deflect attention from their shortcomings in this shooting investigation. Obviously, I think it's a fair conversation to be having about whether or not Lucky should have brought up legislation. But if we're going to be able to have that conversation, we have to push some of the overblown characterizations and politicization of this aside to be able to point out that, you know, it was regulations that these assault rifle right. ban came through and not legislation. The handgun legislation she's talking about in this clip didn't come for months later. So I think there is something there to be discussed, but I just think it's unfortunate the way that it was characterized over the last number of months. I wonder if we're able to really actually have that conversation. And Susan, about that conversation, I mean, at the root of the conversation was this sort of concern about sharing of information. Is that completely overshadowed, especially when you consider the fact that even today the Conservatives have called for Lucky to step down and Bill Blair to step down? Yeah, I thought it was, it's interesting timing, given uh, all the stuff we are going to talk about, too, that is going on in this city about police, taped phone calls, and um, it's, it's lucky for uh, Commissioner Lucky to get this out of the way before her own testimony. I think the air had to be cleared, and I, I agree. I, I listened to it, and I thought, that's sort of what an RCMP commissioner is supposed to be doing. And I do think it was a bit of a sideshow. Um, to what happened in Nova Scotia was really serious. Yeah. Um, and, and the idea of people getting hurt feelings because of a phone call seems to be secondary to me to what actually happened there in Nova Scotia. <clears throat> Greg, you? Uh, I think there's something more, uh, if not sinister, certainly serious uh, afoot here. And what this says is that some of the very senior officers uh, did something and said something about the commissioner uh, that was clearly intended to uh, cause her embarrassment and controversy and other things, which turns out now to be not true. So doesn't need to be said that there's a real problem at right. the top end of the RCMP. Here it is again, and uh, uh, Brenda Lucky just, pardon the expression, <laughs> soldiers on. But, uh, boy, it's, uh, that's a bad sign when your top command is going after your, your commissioner. Yeah. We're going to soldier on to Susan with your misplay. <clears throat> theme of the week, eh? Is, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, this would not be the week I would choose to name a new chief of police in Ottawa. Yet and they did. <laughs> yet they did this afternoon. I am 
stunned by the timing, frankly. Uh, I, I recognize most Canadians, maybe not even most Ottawans, will have been riveted to the hearings as I have been. Mm. But I have been watching the slow motion unraveling of, of uh, or the, the, the revealing of dysfunction at high levels in the political level and the police level in Ottawa. And, uh, you know, concerns about the guy who's now acting right now as Commissioner Steve Bell. And he was in the running for this job. It, it, there's an election on Monday. It just seems like the strangest thing in the world to to uh, to unveil to Ottawa in a week where we, uh, I'm a resident of Ottawa as well, uh, have some serious questions about mm -hmm. how police and local politicians interact with each other. It's it's stunning to me, the timing of it. And timing's everything, Rachel. I mean. Absolutely. And I think if you wanted to try to clear the air about what we heard over the last few days at the commission about the police failure, uh, you would want to come forward with someone who could at least communicate in the press conference today what their plan was for rehabilitating the police's rep uh, reputation and talking about how they're going to rebuild trust with the community. But some of our colleagues asked that to this incoming chief on the call, and his answers, I would say, uh, left me hoping to hear more. Yeah. We want to hear more from Greg, but we're going to get to your play right now. So give that to us, if you don't mind. My play is going to um, an Ontario Court Justice, um, Craig Perry, uh, not a big name out there in the public very much, but he, um, in the last 48 hours, has handed down a conviction and an absolute verbal evisceration of a protester uh, who threatened Justin Trudeau at a, a campaign stop last year during, during the election campaign. And I just felt, I think as, as many, many, many Canadians did, a great sense of relief that somebody has finally stood up and said, violence and unlawful protests will not be tolerated. And right. he made a point, those were his exact words. And he said such anti-democratic uh, activities must stop that they are a threat to the system. And, you know, the, the bigger threat to the system here, aside from, um, you know, violence, um, is what I, I think a lot of us have, have thought for a long time watching um, politics and knowing people who are staying out of politics, discouraging people from entering politics. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we have a a dearth of leadership, and it's not just in Canada, it's, it's everywhere in the, in the Western world, look what's going on in the UK. Um, the fact of the matter is, these types of, of like hateful activities online and in person uh, are just keeping people out of politics. And this is what this judge said, so I think he deserves a great big play of the day. I just say, I, I was at that protest, yeah. and it, it was disgusting. And uh, I, I'm glad to see the judge say it too. I couldn't have said it better myself. 30 seconds or less. How does this set the table for campaigns, though, going forward? Well, I mean, I think it sets the precedent, at least, that there's an acknowledgement if you're going to act this way, there should be consequences. But I think the point he made in saying that, like, at the ballot box and not vigilantism is where these kind of complaints uh, should be addressed. Could be a headline for the whole week when we're talking about what happened at the commission as well. I think it should be a message more wide or widely about how... Canadians need to understand that there are ways to have change and make right. your voice heard, but they need to be appropriate. Rachel, Susan, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us. That's your power play day and week in politics. We'll be back here on Monday. Until then, have a great weekend, everyone. <laughs>